this is Charles Soule, and you are listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Have you ever been to Disneyland? Affirmative. That was definitely an e-ticket. I can't believe all the new gadgets they've got now. For a while, we didn't even have a house phone, not to mention laser discs, high-def TV. You are listening to The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. This week on the show... I don't think it's a good idea to, you know, write for a property you don't like. Like, yeah. I think that's just going to not end well and be miserable for the writer. But at the same time, like, there's a certain level at which fandom not only doesn't help, but I think actively gets in the way. Because, you know, it can you can lose that kind of coldness you need for the story. Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Justin Connors. Welcome in to another episode of the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and you can find us on all the social networks pretty much at thegbbpodcast. I'm your host, Jamie Green. You can find me at The Roarbots. And we're coming back after a few weeks off. We, I took a few weeks off for the summer, um, had a vacation, but I'm back now. And I'm joined by a fresh voice, Preston Burt. Hey, say hello, Preston. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me on, Jamie. It's been a long time listening to your show. I'm glad to finally make my presence known. Yeah, this is awesome. Um, so just quickly, uh, let's let the people know who you are, where you come from, where they can find you, what your deal is. Tell us. <laughs> uh, well, I live outside of Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I am a uh, federal employee by day, but I uh, am a geek at all other times. And <laughs> I spend that time uh, writing and enjoying uh, time with my family. I have uh, two daughters, 13 and 9, and uh, a wife uh, who's wonderful. Um, I write over at Geek Dad, where, which was where we connected. Mm -hmm. um, and then I've since made the jump to be able to also write for your site, The Roarbots. I've been on Paste Magazine uh, and written for a bunch of gaming magazines because my, my secret passion that isn't very secret, actually. I was going to say, it's not so secret. <laughs> um, is uh, uh, arcade and pinball machines. And so I have a gaming convention called the Southern Fried Gaming Expo here in Atlanta. And I've been doing that for the past uh, five years. So, Yeah. And when you say you have it, it's not like, oh, like that's my local con and I go to it. Like that, You started it and you run it, right? Right. Yeah. Me and uh, several of my friends started that thing just from scratch because there really wasn't anything local for us to go to uh kind of just basically jealous of everybody else so i was like hey <laughs> let me start something on myself so yeah i've been doing that and um and how how big has that gotten now uh well you know it's not like a Magfest or a, an origins or a gen con but it's it's not your local holiday Inn express either so <laughs> uh we had uh i think it was 3600 unique individuals last year that's um, not too bad. No, so it was, it's a comfortable show. You know, there's a lot to do, uh, a lot of things to do with your family, and it just continues to grow. So we're yeah. excited. You know, thirty. I mean, when you're talking about something like San Diego or New York, it doesn't sound like a lot. But as somebody who would be running that show, that sounds like a heck of a lot of work to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. It's it's definitely a year long process just for every show to go off. And um, you know, and the funny thing is, is I started it because I was jealous of everybody. But I actually really don't get to enjoy my show very much. Oh. <laughs> I think I get to play maybe like three games the whole time. 
You don't even get like pre, like before it opens, you get to run around and just like have your run of the place. Not really. I mean, I guess I could if I wanted to, but you know, I'm so busy yeah. putting out fires that I, I just don't get a chance to. So now do you have a big staff now or is it really just you and a couple of oh, people? You know, it's, so it's me and two other owners that started it. Um, but, uh, our, our volunteer staff is amazing. Uh, we had 60 different volunteers this year that helped run the show. So it was a big help from everybody. It's a big community effort. And, you know, not just like people checking badges and stuff, but because this is a, it's a gaming convention that not only focuses on, um, you know, arcade games and pinball machines and console games, but, you know, tabletop gaming. But the, the biggest draw and what we started out with was arcade games and pinball machines. And it was a community effort because those things, you know, they weigh 200 something pounds and people mm -hmm. drag them out of their basements just for everybody to enjoy. So it always has been a really big, uh, big community effort. That seems like, you know, on top of the, you know, the, the typical running of the con business, you know, making sure people know where they're supposed to be going, ticketing, exhibitor stuff, like that's all stuff that comes along with every con. But I've seen pictures of your, of your convention. I unfortunately I haven't been there yet, but it is, it's a lot of these full size arcade machines and pinball machines. That must be an enormous effort. Just moving all that stuff. That's like moving furniture. It's like moving moving an apartment building every every time you you have this show. It is. It is. You know, I've got a bunch of my basement and you know, it's it can appear overwhelming, but I'm like, you know, look, I, I only have sixteen of these things. Only. They just happen to be they just happen to be the size of a refrigerator. But you know, <laughs> Yeah, it's a little bit different than people who like have a lot of all the consoles and a lot right. of games, but maybe that's just like a few shelves of, of games and cartridges or whatever. But when you when you collect something like pinball machines or arcade machines, uh -huh. that, that takes up space. When I was in college, my roommate and I decided it would be fun. We bought this was when eBay was young and you could do things like this. We bought a double dragon machine. Awesome. And it was it was it was super awesome. And it was like we bought it. I don't even remember where we bought it from. It was somebody on eBay. And it was like shipped by freight. And it was an and they shipped it. I went to school in Virginia and they shipped it to Richmond, which was an hour away from where I went to school. And it so like I had a station wagon and we just drove to this freight warehouse, kind of like put it in the back of the car because it fit. And we drove back the hour with the back open because it, the back couldn't close. But we had a double dragon machine in our apartment. And every time somebody would come over, they were just like, it does does that does that work and they're like yeah man it works and they, that was it like that was the night we'd have a few beers and we just sit, sit there and you know play double dragon two player but i can't imagine having like 16 machines in your basement yeah it's 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 pretty cool it's great for for parties and stuff but you know it's funny that my, my kids they're just they've just always been present they don't they don't care anything about them whatsoever so <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's kind of lonely for, down there by myself most it's nights it's normal for them it's like oh dad's with his games again <laughs> yeah uh so a nice little segue into our topic today is you know my very first um article that i wrote for geek dad which again is where i met you was covering the star wars battle pod arcade game which was new like three years ago have yeah. you gotten to see this or play this so no i've seen it in person again when it was new that year was the year that i went to d23 which is the big disney convention it was out in anaheim and i saw it um but i didn't have like an appointment with the people to like skip the line and the line was crazy long all weekend so i didn't play it but it did look pretty amazing Yes. So if you have a Dave and Buster's near you or you get to find it somewhere else, I highly recommend you pay whatever it costs to just try it out because it is it's a true experience and it's everything we ever wanted that 
that very first Star Wars arcade game with the vector graphics yeah. doing the trench run. That's what we we had to use our imaginations a lot on that one. But this one, you don't have to use your imagination at all. You got wind blowing in your face. You got almost near surrounds uh, visuals. It, it's a really, really cool game. So do you have one of those in your basement? Oh, man, I wish. But no, <laughs> the, no, I think new those things are like $20,000. So I don't think I'm going to be picking one up anytime soon. <laughs> it's an investment in your future, I'm sure. <laughs> That's the way to convince your wife that you need right, one. It's an yeah. investment. <laughs> so, you know, but you, you mentioned starting uh, your show because there was nothing else around and you were, you were jealous. But you guys have Dragon Con down there. Oh, my gosh. You're right. Uh, I actually just came back from Dragon Con. It's over Labor Day weekend. And I, I've been going now every year since 2003 um, because I grew up in uh, – for most of elementary and high school and college, I grew up in Mississippi. And we didn't have anything that resembled a good convention anywhere. And so when I moved to Atlanta after college and I met a friend, he told me about Dragon Con. I hadn't even heard about it, but we bought a day pass and – I, I knew instantly that just the one day would not suffice. Mm -hmm. I was just amazed and blown away. And so every year since then, we uh, have stayed you know, at a hotel there and have just watched it grow and grow and grow. I think there were something like 80,000 people this year Jeez. at Dragon Con. And if you're familiar with it at all, you know it's like a, it's a huge, uh, what they call nerdy gras, because it takes place in, um, in three adjoining hotels and then some other separate locations nearby there are also hotels so instead of a convention hall where you just go and get to spend the day and then they close it down the party goes all night long 24 hours a day so it's it's a great great time i've not been but from what i've heard from people who have been from you and from a few other people is that it is i mean it's the reputation of dragon con is that it's very heavily cosplay oriented um, but exactly what you just said is that it's a lot of drinking, it's a lot of partying, and it's not necessarily the most kid-friendly of cons. Is that true? Uh, no, I, I would say that it is kid-friendly up until probably about 8 p.m. Okay. Um, and then it gets uh, it gets a little more adult-oriented and stuff. Um, they do have some specific kids' tracks. Um, they used to have uh, childcare on site so that people could, could spend some time. Um, but... No, it's it's you'll see just as many families out there uh, cosplaying as you do solo individuals and people um, a little more inebriated than they should be. So, <laughs> so Star Wars jumping into the conversation to, to you know the topic of today, but Star Wars has had a weird year, um, uh -huh. you know, with uh, you know everything over the Last Jedi and then Solo kind of not meeting a lot of expectations, even though it was a really great movie. Uh, and then Rebels ended, and now we've got the announcement for Star Wars Resistance, which I'm excited about. I think looks cool, but I've seen some rumblings that it doesn't, you know, because it's geared toward a much younger audience and it sort of has an anime feel, people are, like, already fighting against it. <laughs> um, how was the presence, like, how did you see Star Wars represented among cosplayers, among fans, among panels at Dragon Con? Because um, I'm just curious about, you know, how far because when, when you live in the twitter world or you know you're in on twitter a lot you sort of get one skewed view of things and uh -huh. i'm just wondering how it's playing out especially this year with things being a little bit weird for it i think twitter you get a lot of a very vocal minority uh, of people who who 
you know, just are pedantic and pick things apart um, just for, I don't know, uh, just, just to cause a ruckus. But at Dragon Con, you know, that's where you're going to see true fans. And I, I could be wrong. I'm sure someone will be happy to send me an email there to tell me I'm wrong. But uh, I think the 501st, mm-hmm. uh, which is the big, you know, cosplaying, Star Wars cosplaying group, I think it, it started in Atlanta. Um, uh, I could be wrong. But I know that the presence of the 501st has always been a huge part of Dragon Con. I remember one of the early years that I went, um, it ha- it was the the same week i think of hurricane katrina and there were there were stormtroopers there with uh, red cross symbols on collecting donations uh and raised thousands and thousands of dollars um this the uh you know on the flip side of the 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 slave leia contingent has grown every year there's always a huge uh photo opportunity of slave leias and that kind of thing um but dragon con if you don't know dragon con has uh, a really, really large parade that has become the largest parade in the entire state of Georgia. And really, this, yeah, this year they so they closed down um, the main drag downtown Atlanta. Over a hundred thousand people come out just to watch that on the streets. And the parade it took I think an hour and a half just to finish. Wow, I had no and idea. the The final thing of the parade every year is always the 501st, and this year they brought their game hard in so much as they had a gigantic sand crawler um, that no one had ever seen before. This is the first time it made its uh, its appearance. I don't know how they kept it under wraps. Apparently they threatened everybody in the cosplay loop. <laughs> if, if pictures got out, they were dead to the group. But yeah, it was a, you know, it was a scale, but it was a, still a really, really giant scale that they had to have, have must have constructed it on site. Yeah because they couldn't have driven it anywhere. It's, it was fantastic. Um, one thing that I know that you would be excited about, um, you know, there were there were some great costumes, uh, tons of Landos from the new Solo movie. Um, there were... Uh, a funny thing was... <laughs> it, it was a, a group of... Um, there was a group of Kylo Ren when he had his shirt off. Oh, yeah. And he had those high-waisted pants. Yeah. So there was there was a bunch of those guys doing a photo shoot. But then there was one guy who had exaggeratedly high uh, pants. It was like <laughs> above his nipples. It was so funny. So funny. <laughs> I love all those memes about that picture with the huge with the huge chest and the really high pants. So like, yeah, that's yeah. amazing that there were cosplayers doing that. But now you're a big Disney fan, I know. So the thing that you would have loved to see the most... It's always the deep cuts, right? The ones yeah. that are like, oh my gosh, I know what that is. So at a lot of conventions, people have the R2-D2s, the, you know, the, the scale replicas that are just perfect. They, right. they beep, they boop, they go around. Somebody at this con had built a replica of RX-24, which do you know what that is? I, I don't even know. You will. You just maybe not didn't know the name. Okay. It's the, the droid from Star Tours. <gasps> of course. Rex. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh yeah, yeah sorry Re- i did i use this precise name no I, yeah, yeah if you had said rex i would have known immediately who you were who that was it's paul rubens who did that voice oh and yeah he's not even in the ride anymore now it's just c-3po oh, uh, i know so, but the original star tours had had rex and that that little annoying droid it was amazing yeah they, it was I'll, a full-size one? Oh yeah yeah oh. it was it was dead on perfect it was great that's amazing i do want to see that yeah forget those kylo ren's now now i want to see that (laughs) 
So today, the reason we're talking Star Wars is today uh, I am bringing you guys my conversation. I talked to Jason Fry, and Jason is certainly no stranger to the world of Star Wars. He has written just so many books in the Star Wars universe. Most recently, he wrote the novelization for The Last Jedi. And when we talk about, you know, Twitter presenting the vocal minority, man, this guy, Jason Fry, is a saint because of what he's had to put up with. Uh, you know, when he first got the gig, he had no idea what kind of response The Last Jedi was going to generate. And boy, did he ever hear it uh, afterwards. You know, they, I don't need to go into it. You guys all know the, the stupid controversy that people have created out of this movie. But Jason was tasked with writing the novelization. And he actually, I mean, he actually, he did a phenomenal job with it, but he brought a lot more to it. So if you pick up the book, it's actually called the extended or the expanded edition. There's a whole lot uh, in the book that wasn't necessarily in the final cut of the movie. Some of it was from earlier scripts. Some of it was from alternate um, screenplays. Some of it he just added in with, you know, with after conversations, he had a lot of conversations with Ryan Johnson, the director with with the Disney story group, the Lucasfilm story group. I'm sorry. Uh, And the the prologue to the book generated a lot of buzz when it first came out because it presents an alternate view sort of 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 Luke and a dream that he had. And it sort of puts the events of The Last Jedi and especially the events that Luke is involved with in a different light. Um, But definitely, if you haven't read it, if you haven't picked it up, go read it. It's definitely highly recommended. He has also written a lot outside of Star Wars. He is working on right now a series of young adult books called The Jupiter Pirates, which are just a heck of a lot of fun. I've read the first one, one and a half. Uh, There's three of them out right now. Uh, we talk about that. There's going to be five of them eventually. We talk about a lot of stuff here. So we talk about The Last Jedi. We talk about the book. We talk about dealing with fans. We talk about the Jupiter Pirates. We talk about uh, the process of writing a novelization as opposed to an original story. Uh, it's a really super awesome conversation. It's been a long time coming. I've uh, Jason and I have been going back and forth for a long time about coming on the show, but he his hands were tied. NDA privacy wise for a long time uh, because the book came out well after the movie did and uh, he was just not free to talk about anything for a long time Um, but here we go you can find us everywhere at the GBB podcast you can find me at the Roarbots Preston where can the good people find you I'm on Twitter at no cash value eight zero and thank you guys for subscribing and coming back every week We have a lot of great conversations coming up this fall. Now that I'm back after the summer break, I've got, I think, I'm not lying to you, I think I've got five new interviews scheduled for next week. They're all super exciting, and I can't wait to bring them all to you. So do come back, hit subscribe, check us out, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Facebook, follow us on YouTube, whatever you want to do. And I will see you guys next week. Take care. Jason, thank you so much for taking the time. It's awesome to have you. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I, um, whenever I look at sort of a an author's body of work, I guess, and and it's all not all over the place, but I mean, you are very prolific. You've written a lot. You've written a lot for a lot of different audiences, different readers. It always makes me think, like, how do you get it all done? Are you, do you have a daily routine? Like, are you one of those people who wakes up before dawn and says, like, I need to get 3,000 words before the sun comes up? 
No, nothing like that. I actually, um, I actually wake up like discouragingly late. <laughs> um, yeah, in my uh, in my middle age, I've reverted to total teenage sleep pattern. So I'll <laughs> typically sleep till like like ten thirty or so. Um, wow. Are you, so you're a, a are night, you a night owl? Yeah, I'm a total night owl. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it's interesting. I I, I think that. Um, that there's kind of only so many productive words a day and, and so much productive time. So I would get up kind of, you know, wake up by, um, you know, dealing with all the email and, and stuff like that, that I need to take care of. And then, you know, catching up with the news, et cetera. And then I usually work till five thirty six or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, you know, see my wife, uh, watch a baseball game. And then uh, the part I, I need to, the part I still need to figure out, and I mean, it's been years and I haven't figured it out, so I'm <laughs> getting a little a little down about the prospects, but I keep trying, is, is late at night, I often, you know, I will usually get back in front of my computer and try to write, try to work, but I find that that late night session is usually not productive, so yeah. I really need to, to find something else to do with that, whether it's generating ideas or... Um, you know, research or something like that. So, you know, there's, there's always something to work on. Yeah. But, um, you know, but I mean, one nice thing about what I do, which I think ties into, you know, your point about having written so much different stuff is, I mean, every project is different. Yeah. And, you know, there's your writing, uh, there's your usual writing um, regimen. And then there's, you know, what needs to get done to get a project done. And that's, you know, of course, anything necessary. Yeah. But you know, that's, that's fine by me. I mean, it, you know, it breaks things up a little bit. Yeah. It's curious. I'm, you mentioned, you know, you're not, you try to work at night, but it doesn't really happen. Is is that just because like, there's like the weight of the day or is it, you just don't find yourself to be creative at nighttime? I don't know. I I mean, I think I'm kind of spent. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I would have the same thing back when I I was working, I worked in journalism for years and years. Um, that, you know, they're just kind of only so many words. Yeah. <laughs> if I'd uh, if I'd let them if I'd let them go during the day, there wasn't that much uh, for side stuff. But yeah, I, I mean, I think that any budding writers hearing that, I mean, I, I would hope the message from that isn't a discouraging one. I mean, you know, there's the old saw: you write a page a day, you write a book a year, mm-hmm. and you know that's true, and that's a good sized uh, full novel. So. You know, if you can really get four, five, six pretty productive hours out of a day, I mean, don't worry about a thing. You're going to yeah. be way ahead of the game. It's it's funny. I mean, I've talked to a lot of different writers for the show, and there is no one way to work. You know, like everybody, if I've talked to a hundred different authors, there's a hundred different ways that they have written their books or written whatever it is that they write. And it's, it's, it's whatever works for you. And what works for you is not going to work for me necessarily. Yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely right. And it goes from everything from scheduling to the writing process, et cetera. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, figure out what works for you and you're right. That's going to be, you know, probably unique as a fingerprint. Yeah. Um, you know, the one, the one caveat I'd stick with that is, you know, your whatever works for you is going to be unique, but you're probably not going to find a path no one has tried before. Yeah. So, you know, you certainly will do very well by, you know, taking more experienced writers advice and trying it out. I mean, that'll get you a lot farther than kind of going blindly out in search of the perfect path. 
What's your take on advice? I mean, a lot of it's it's kind of falling into two camps. It seems now, like there's there's the one camp that says, you know, like you need to you need to listen to the people who have done this before, you know, you, or else you're just going to end up reinventing the wheel. But then there's like sort of the other camp that's saying, you know, like I, I, just because it worked for me doesn't mean I know what I'm doing, and I really don't have advice. So don't listen to anybody else because you need to do your own thing. I've seen I've seen writers kind of, especially on social media, fall on one side or the other. Yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, the one the one thing that just really makes me impatient is is the writing process as like mystical phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Like that just doesn't work for me. I mean, I, you know, writers love to talk about writing because <laughs> you know it's a way to feel like you're doing something, but you're not right. actually writing. And you know, and it can be really helpful. You know, I get all that, but um, but I mean, I you know, I was a daily journalist, and there was that kind of helped me a lot, helped me avoid a lot of, of bad habits. I mean, in in daily journalists. Listen, if you've got, you know, a 5.30 deadline, there's no sitting there at 4.30 being like, I'm just not really feeling it. Yeah. <laughs> you the know? muse you're, isn't you're, speaking to me right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're, exactly. You're going to be, I mean, you're going to be out on the bricks if you yeah. do that. So, you know, it's butt and seat. Yeah. I mean, any writing process, et cetera, that doesn't involve butt and seat isn't going to work because that's where the work happens. So I'm just, that's the one thing that kind of... Um, makes me get my my dander up is you know this is not mysticism it's your butt in the seat working and uh working and writing and rewriting and all that yeah. so yeah i mean you know the yeah exactly and yeah as, as you mentioned the muse the muse the muse doesn't come to people who patiently wait the <laughs> yeah. muse emerges um from people working and there's no way around that believe yeah. me i wish there was but uh <laughs> yeah if your butt's not in the seat you know, no process is going to help you. Is Do you think that's the biggest, I guess, lesson that you've taken from all of your years as journalism to, you know, like, is there anything else that you've taken from that experience and that huge part of your life to this, you know, daily full-time creative writing? Oh, yeah. A whole lot of things really, really helped me uh, from doing that. I mean, one is, you know, this, it, this really is a team effort. I mean, not in the beginning. In the beginning, it's just going to be you trying to make it work, mm-hmm. but you're going to get edited. Uh, there are going to be other people involved in the work, um, and you know, you, you do yourself no favors by getting your back up about that. I mean, by all means, there are things you know, in your work you're going to disagree with uh, other people about, and you know, there are hills you're going to decide to die on, et cetera. But you know, you, yeah, I mean hills you're going to die on. I mean, remember the die part and pick yeah. them really, really carefully. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, in the vast majority of situations, like everyone is on the same side there. They're trying to find the same goal. So, you know, work with them. And that's something, you know, I had to learn as a daily journalist, you were going to get edited and, you know, sometimes it was going to be sitting side by side, really talking stuff through. And sometimes there wasn't going to be time for that. And it was going to be, you know, fast and dirty to get it out the door. And that's okay. You're going to, you know, you're going to do this again in no time flat. You're going to be working on something else. So that was a big thing for me. Uh, It also helped me write really clean copy, Um, particularly because, I mean, most of my journalism experience was on the website, including Mm -hmm. things like, um, you know, I used to write the presidential election write through for the online Wall Street Journal. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, every four years. And that was crazy. I mean, you literally write that a hundred times in a night. And um, because of the way publishing worked, I mean, there was, except for kind of the big, the big kind of landmark uh, edits on that, there, there just wasn't time to edit that. I had to like push it live myself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as you might imagine with an audience that big, et cetera, that's scary. Sure. And the result is you get, you get to be pretty good at writing really clean copy and being able to edit yourself. And, you know, I think that's something I'm really happy for because, um, you know, it just makes everyone else's job easier. I mean, you know, editor, just like writers have X amount of words, you know, I mean, editors, I've been one myself, have X amount of editing. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the less of your editor's time you waste with uh, typos and, and things like that, the more, um, you know, great, uh, great real teamwork you can get out of that person. Yeah. It, you know, that the first thing there that you mentioned, you know, being understanding that you're going to get edited and that it's a team collaborative effort much of the time that must come in handy when you're working in a world that you don't really control like star wars you know where it's this belongs to somebody else and there's a a whole group of people who who own it and it's not you you know what i mean so it's like they there are things that you can and cannot do with it oh yeah absolutely um you know uh my pal John Jackson Miller refers to it as like being in a national park. Yeah. You know, you, you have, have a small footprint and you're respectful and um, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, that's true. It's your, it's somebody else's sandbox. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, with star Wars, I mean, it happens to be like one of the greatest storytelling sandboxes ever. So it's really, really fun to play in it, but yeah, you, you don't own this. And, and that goes for your own characters too. I mean, if you make, uh, characters, planets, what have you. I mean, they, they don't belong to you and you've definitely got to, uh, you definitely got to get over that and say, all right, you know, they're, they're, they're toys in the sandbox for the next person to play with. And that's the way it goes. But, uh, yeah, I, I think that's, um, I think that's all part of it. And I think ultimately it's, it's healthy. Yeah. Before we jump into star Wars, um, Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk about the Jupiter pirates. Um, how, how much of those books just grew out of your love of Star Wars and, and, and a desire to tell your own story with sort of some of the trappings and some of the love of Star Wars built into it? Oh, yeah. No, it's a great question. Um, yeah, I mean, they definitely grew out of Star Wars because, I mean, honestly, I was I was eight years old when I saw A New Hope. So, you know, on some level, any storytelling I ever do is gonna is gonna grow out of Star Wars. Right. I mean, that was just the absolute perfect time uh, for everything. Um, and there are things like you know, Jupiter Pirates has you know kind of George Lucas physics, like <laughs> you know, spaceships, you know, twist and turn and do impossible things, just because that's what I grew up with and it mm-hmm. was more fun. Um, but yeah, beyond that, I mean, some of it was consciously different though. Like, um, you know, I didn't want, I didn't want droids or aliens in Jupiter Pirates just because, you know, I'd used that muscle and I wanted to do something uh, without that. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. But no, mostly it came from, actually, Jupiter Pirates started with uh, my wife and I walking along uh, the park on the West Side Highway mm-hmm. in New York, right by the Hudson River. And we were kind of, I was kind of, um, shaping an idea that I, you know, that really the first point was kind of creating a world that I'd want to play in. So, you know, I was like, all right, it's, 
we've got uh, our solar system, say the 29th century, and um, you know the humanity has expanded, and there are colonies on the moons of Jupiter. Like, I mean, that's that's fairly standard. There sure. are a hundred science fiction stories like that one. Um, and then I said, what if we had a? I said, you know, space pirates, because I've always loved you know, space, obviously, and yeah. pirates. So why not put them together? And then I, you know, you keep refining it. And I was like, what if you had a family of space pirates? Yeah. You know, okay, that's interesting. And then from there, it went to the mother's the captain, uh, the father is the first mate, and the children are midshipmen. Okay, a little closer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what really tied it together, and this is really the engine of Jupiter Pirates, is the series, is that the kids are simultaneously cooperating to keep each other alive as part of the Starship crew, uh, but they're also competitors because if this is the family business, then the uh, the uh, family Starship gets handed down from one generation to another along with the captaincy. And so only one kid can be the captain. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, my wife and I kind of looked at each other and we were like, huh, that's, that's kind of cool. That could be really fun. And uh, off I went. And yeah. so, yeah, now we're three books in with two more to go. And uh, it's been a blast. I always love telling stories in that world. How, how freeing is that, though? I mean, especially since you've, you've been so enmeshed in Star Wars for so long. Like, just to create this universe basically from scratch and not be beholden to that larger franchise. Oh, yeah. No, it's great. And it's also, um, there have been some wonderful times when I've been working on Jupiter Pirates and Star Wars kind of side by side and those are really really productive days because the one kind of um the one kind of feels like an escape from the other Mm -hmm. so in a sense they can kind of charge charge up the batteries one way and then the other Mm -hmm. uh which is really great the one thing i will say though is it gosh i mean if i didn't know this before it has taught me to have infinite respect and patience uh, with uh, folks like you know Leland Chi, mm-hmm. my um, my friends on the Star Wars Story Group, and and everyone who keeps track of of continuity and kind of those storytelling nuts and bolts because it is it much gets unwieldy, right? <laughs> oh, and fast! It is much much harder than you think. Yeah. And um, you know there are continuity mistakes in Jupiter Pirates. And how can that be possible? It's such a small, <laughs> but it is. You know, it it just is. So yeah. I I sometimes joke I need. Like another me to, you know, track Jupiter Pirates continuity the way I track like Star Wars planets. <laughs> but that's what a good editor is for, right? That's what you, you know, we were talking about earlier. You need to have yeah, a good but, editor who tracks those things. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I, I don't, it's funny though. I don't, I don't blame my editor for missing, say that, you know, the readouts on on Hushun's Huff, cyborg um, get up were you know, kind of on the breastplate here and then move down to the, yeah. Know, it's, it's just stuff like that. Yeah. Little but then stuff readers that... ask me and readers are like, how could you get this wrong? And I'm like, I don't know. That's a great question. <laughs> well, I have to imagine though, with dealing with Jupiter pirates in your own work, it's a, the fans are probably a little bit easier to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's funny though. I mean, gosh, there are great, great questions. Um, you know, um, they just kind of come out of nowhere. But actually, another thing it's really taught me is is world building. Yeah. Um, that I that that's a question I get about Jupiter Pirates a lot. Like people want the entire history of the solar system. Mm. Um, and I get that because I was the same way as a kid. Like, I mean, that was 
stuff I loved was was understanding all the kind of underpinnings of um, you know a setting, a history, etc. But I mean, what I learned for for Jupiter Pirates was that I now say that world building is kind of like matte painting. Like you just you do what you need um, to be behind the plot uh, in the same way that you know if you're if you have like the Millennium Falcon landing um, you know on the platform in Cloud City. You don't need to paint the entirety of Bespin. You just paint like what's directly behind the ship. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the reason for that, I mean, I mean, first of all, I mean, it's just easier because uh, you know a book is a lot of work. Uh, but the other thing, and, and this was the part that I had missed until I did my own series, was um, it it gives you a lot more freedom in terms of possibilities um, by not doing all that, you know, right off the bat. You, you don't wind up limiting yourself in ways you might regret later. So that was a, a big lesson and something that I, I carried into Star Wars, actually. Like, you know, all that stuff is really fun, but don't define more than you need because you often wind up uh, wishing you hadn't. Right. And, you know, with something like Star Wars, also, I mean, that's really true um, considering that, you know, as you know, you know, you're, I'm not the only storyteller in that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and the last thing you want to do is, is limit someone else's possibilities because of something you didn't really need for your own story. Yeah. And that, you know, I've, I've had both Leland and Pablo on the show and that's what they mm-hmm. say is, is a big part of their work on the story group is that, you know, it, giving writers the freedom to tell the story they want, but at the same time, not shackling future writers to tell their stories. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I've had, I've discussed this with fans sometimes, and sometimes they kind of get their back up about that, <laughs> which, you know, again, I get, because, you know, I have the same impulse, like, you know, oh my goodness, I want to know everything. Yeah. But what I think sometimes gets missed is it's not saying, like, you know, you got to keep all this stuff vague and nebulous. It's not saying that at all. It's just saying, like, you know, define what we need for this story. Mm-hmm. But then don't overdefine beyond that, because that's where, you know, for something you don't really need, you wind up stepping on something else. Yeah. And yeah, that's what you really don't want to do. Yeah. Um, you know, much of like I, I've said this a couple times now, but like much of your writing career has been in, in that Star Wars sandbox, you know, and, and moving over to Jupiter Pirates is an escape from that, like you said. But is there part of you that kind of wishes that you had more time to create and write your own stories? Um, no, um, or at least I don't really think about that. Um, and I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I mean, one is I just, I just love writing and storytelling. Mm-hmm. And so you give me a chance to do that and, you know, I'm pretty happy and I'm not going <laughs> to be like, oh, I'd be more happy if I was doing X. Like, yeah. yeah, I'm just happy. I'm ready to go. Um, I think part of it also, this gets back to, you know, being eight years old and a new hope is, you know, I don't really look at Star Wars as kind of this, just kind of a IP, uh, intellectual property Mm -hmm. that, you know, I'm hired to do. I mean, yes, that's what it is. But because I was eight years old, and it meant so much to me and and always has since then, it doesn't feel that way to me. Um, You know, it really, it, it really feels consistently like, I'm getting away with something like, wow, I get to write, I get to write Star Wars. This is so much fun. So, um, you know, which as an independent professional writer, 
I mean, to be honest, is not a great way to approach your business with everything. <laughs> but, you know, I'm really happy that it's true of Star Wars. Like, um, you know, I if there's a, a Star Wars project that doesn't make me say, like, wow, that sounds like a lot of fun. I really want to do it. You know, then I don't take it. Mm -hmm. And but, you know, I can think of maybe once or twice ever that that's happened. Yeah. So and that's really great. I mean, after all this time, you probably have this sorted out. But did you ever have difficulty sort of separating the two, like being a fan and having a job to do? Um, no, not really. Um, and I think, again, I think journalism really helps there. Mm -hmm. I mean, you just got to have kind of a cold eye about it. Um, no, and, and I admit I'm a little surprised by that because I am a huge, huge fan, but you've just got to kind of switch uh, that part of yourself off and figure out what does something need uh, as a story yeah. and, and look at it that way. Um, I think it's interesting, though. It's, it's another thing I often tell um, fans when we're talking is that, I mean, people look at my Star Wars career and see it as you know, oh, Jason was a huge, huge fan and got to write Star Wars, you know, that's the starting point is being a huge fan. Mm. And, you know, actually, that, that's not really why I got to write Star Wars. It's almost a coincidence. Um, you know, what got me the chance to write Star Wars was that I had uh, a pretty long career as a professional writer. And, um, you know, fandom is great. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong at all. That That's wonderful. And, you know, also, I don't think that I don't think it's a good idea to you know write for a property you don't like like yeah. I think that's just gonna not end well and be miserable for the writer but at the same time like there's a certain level at which fandom not only doesn't help but I think actively gets in the way because you know it can you can lose that kind of coldness you need for the story mm -hmm. um, so yeah I mean I've always been able to balance them which i feel very very yeah. lucky about i would imagine the inclination as a fan and especially if you're like like oh i'm a super fan i know everything is to get everything into your story which is what you were we were just saying is like you don't want to do you don't want to over explain you don't want to give too much away um but the 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 inclination probably is is to sit down and be like i know everything there is to know about star wars and i'm going to put it in this book yeah, um, it's something you got to guard against. Yeah, and actually, I had kind of a kind of a moment of clarity about it. With um, uh, I wrote a book, uh, The Essential Guide to Warfare, mm -hmm. which I mean, I really like that book, and I'm really proud of that book. Um, but it kind of marked this point where I'd, I'd kind of gone off the deep end in terms of lore <laughs> and getting it all in there, which, you know, is understandable. It's like basically a history of the galaxy yeah. uh, seen through military stuff. So, yeah, I mean, you're, you're going to wind up going in deep. There's no way around it. But we, um, I remember I was, I had outlined what I wanted uh, for that book and I was writing through it and I was at about the halfway point and I stopped and looked at the word count and so at the halfway point in the outline, I had written about like 130% of oh, the word count for the, for the entire, entire book. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God. Oops. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I was like, oh, my God, this is a mess. Um, and we actually wound up um, publishing a bunch of that stuff uh, on StarWars.com mm -hmm. like a couple of years later, which was really fun. But um, 
there was one entry I put up because I had gone back to it and I was like, I was like, oh my gosh, this is just incomprehensible. Like you need a <laughs> master's degree in Star Wars about it to <laughs> understand it. And even then it was like, you know, an adjunct of stuff that led to the Trade Federation. I mean, it was just incredibly obscure, yeah. even if you were a really big Star Wars fan. And I was reading that and I was like, I was like, you know, what is this? Like what, why, why in the world did I go down this rabbit hole at all, let alone this deep? And I put it up as kind of an object lesson that this was where I was like, you know, the story, the story, the story, don't dive so far down this lore yeah. rabbit hole that you can't get out. Um, and of course, like I put that up and, you know, there were a bunch of people who were like, that was my favorite part. I wish the whole book was like that. And I was like, no, that was, you missed the point. No, no, no. So I don't know. Yeah, that was a good lesson. And so, you know, and very helpful to me. Like, I think like probably poor Leland and Pablo have been trying to get me to see that for a while, been, you know, not listening, but it's, um, it was really helpful to me moving forward. Um, you know, doing more fiction yeah. in terms of figuring out, like, you know, how much lore is helpful here is good color and how much is just going to get in the way. Yeah. So I think I'm much better at that now. Well, I mean, as somebody with that background in journalism and who has written legitimate nonfiction, I mean, is that is that a hard to swallow? I mean, is that a hard pill to swallow writing Star Wars, quote unquote, nonfiction? I mean, it's still fantasy, you know, but it's it's not... You know, like like you were saying, like the essential guides or the or the visual guides that are supposed to be just information and quote unquote nonfiction, mm -hmm. but it's not. I mean, it, it's still a form yeah, yeah. of storytelling. But I mean, is yeah. that is that hard for you to take since you have a legitimate nonfiction background? Uh, no. Um, one thing I don't know why this is true, but it is. But one thing that has been excruciatingly hard for me, uh, the couple of times I've tried to do it, is to do basically kind of a journalism article that's fiction mm. um and i did that i've done that a couple times for star wars works um as well as some other stuff and i find it almost impossible i think because you know i know how that process works and it's it's both very difficult and also kind of professional malpractice to start at the three quarters point you mm -hmm. know what i mean yeah like i can't do that without actually having done reporting but there's nothing to report. So, <laughs> you know, that has been, um, yeah, that was very, very strange. Uh, one thing I did notice, though, is, you know, I mean, I do still write nonfiction fiction, as, as we put it, in Star Wars, and mm -hmm. I really do still enjoy that. But, I mean, you know, in recent years, most of my efforts have really gone more towards straight fiction. And in retrospect, I could kind of see that coming because I kept... Um, you know, in warfare, there are a bunch of things that are really more like mini short stories. And, you know, that started happening more and more and made me realize, like, you know, that wasn't an accident. Like, this was the itch I really wanted to scratch. Yeah. Um, well, let's jump over to the Last Jedi novelization for a few minutes. How, mm -hmm. how long in advance of the announcement did you know that you were writing it? Like, how long had you been working on it? Uh, I had known for quite a while, um, but I wasn't really working on it because, yeah. um, you know, I really needed to, uh, you know, review a bunch of scripts, uh, meet with Ryan and kind of get the foundation for that project. Did, had you ever had a harder secret to keep? <laughs> 
probably not. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, that was amazing. Um, and that was true throughout the project. Like, um, I was so relieved when the premiere of the movie finally came because it meant that, you know, I could still screw up, but I couldn't like capital S, capital U screw up anymore. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I was convinced that, you know, I would like hit my head and run around Brooklyn Heights like yelling the last Jedi spoilers or something <laughs> awful. So, yeah, it was a huge, huge relief when premiere date came and I was more or less safe. <laughs> so what was the process for writing that book? Because it came out months after the film but like at what point did you start writing and were you working from screenplays like how was that how did that work um i went out and and met with uh with ryan uh, at skywalker ranch uh which was its own thrill Mm -hmm. um in july uh fairly late july and as part of that i had read i had read pretty much every major iteration of the script Mm -hmm. um before meeting with him and uh and ryan I mean, there were, there were so many things Ryan was incredibly generous about, but one of them was he said, you know, kind of anything in those earlier versions you think you can use, go for it, uh, which was great. Um, then I really started writing in earnest September. It was kind of September, October was the main writing. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, we did some editing. And then um, we had... This is a misconception a lot of people have. Like, yeah, that book came out in March. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's there's still a really long lead time for books. Sure. I mean, in, in, in most cases, it's actually a lot easier to change a movie than it is to change a book. Um, so we'd had just enough time to do another very quick pass uh, after the movie was actually out. But... Um, what I was focusing on uh, in that pass was making sure the really major important dialogue matched uh, things like, you know, Luke and, and Yoda in front of the um, the burning tree, mm-hmm. um, and then a, just a little where I could do it uh, choreography for the fight scenes, like something like the throne room duel, mm-hmm. um, and that's just really really hard. Like that's not the kind of thing. Uh, where the script is going to be able to help you because so much of the choreography and action is going to uh, come together in production yeah. um, and not be in the script. And that was the place where, you know, I wanted at least the kind of major points of that fight to be correct uh, in the novelization. Yeah. Which, by the way, is incredibly hard. <laughs> I mean, it's not like, you know, it's not like I had the scene on my computer and could pause it or anything. I had to just you know, see the movie and take notes and then repeat as often as I could. Um, but that was really it. Um, so, you know, there are ideas out there somehow that, you know, we had like a lot of time or that I was somehow brought in to quote, fix the movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a, that's not true. And B, you know, even if, um, you know, even if for some reason somebody did decide like, Oh, let's quote, fix the movie. Like, it wouldn't have come out in March. <laughs> it would have taken a little bit that. longer. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's funny. The, the folks who believe in that conspiracy theory, I'm like, I'm like, wow, there's a lot about a lot about publishing and movies that, that you yeah. don't get. Wow. Shocker, right? People who complain <laughs> yeah. online yeah. don't understand how things work. Uh, yeah. I mean, look, I mean, complain online. I mean, hey, look, we all complain online. But, you know, know, know the parameters of what you're complaining about. Yeah. And a lot of those complaints will, you know go out the window or be uh, taken up a little differently. Yeah. 
So, I mean, after you started writing, though, I mean, the film wasn't set. I mean, they were still working on it. So changes to the story or changes to the script, were you in those meetings or did you just get notes from Ryan and say, hey, we made these changes, make sure your book reflects that? Like, how did that work, that back and forth? No, uh, well, actually, they were pretty much done. I mean, when I met with Ryan, I think they were doing... um, I think they were finishing up sound mixes and okay. stuff like that. So they were pretty pretty much done. Um, and, and no, they, I mean, uh, I mean, Ryan was incredibly generous. He was like, you know, hit me with any questions you have. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really do that for a couple of reasons. One is that, you know, his script was already really rich with what characters were thinking, what was in their heads which is not always the case. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was already incredibly helpful to me. Um, and then the other part of it also was, I was like, I was like, the man just finished making a star Wars movie. Like, <laughs> you know, he deserves a rest. So if I can avoid bugging him. I'm yeah. going to do that. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, any of the major stuff we uh, had to go through, I mean, that's why, I mean, that's why there's this, a, a terrific uh, editorial team yeah. Uh, Lucasfilm as well as Story Group. So, you know, it's it's a um, it's a structure for handling it, but not a bureaucracy. It's pretty much what you'd want, honestly, as a writer to get those things right. Nice. Uh, I, I have to imagine writing a novelization for a film that you hadn't really seen yet came with its whole, whole bag of challenges. But one of them that I can see is that so much of a character's personality and how you mm-hmm. would want to describe that character is tied up with the actor. So how did you yeah. approach um, these new characters that you hadn't really seen the performances for yet? You know, like Rose, Holdo, Benicio Del Toro's character. Like, you could read their role on the page, but it, how the actors perform them and bring them to life could be completely different. Uh, it's hard. It's really hard. Um I was a little, I mean, I mean, gosh, Alan Dean Foster had a lot harder than I did because mm. at least, you know, most of the characters I knew, um, though I've been through that myself, you know, I, I wrote uh, Ray's Survival Guide, a book I, I, I'm really proud of and that I really like, but mm. I had to write that book entirely before ever, you know, seeing Daisy Ridley as Ray or hearing her voice. Uh, which is tough. I mean, there's no way around it. So, yeah, I mean, uh, Rose was hard. Um, and I was also actually I was yeah I was writing I had also written uh, Bomber Command by that point which was um, Paige and Rose mm-hmm. uh, DJ was very tough um, but you know it's um, you know I did have a little bit of time uh, after you know getting I did get to see the film a little early which helped mm-hmm. and then you know there was the chance also to honestly see it in the theater. Um, which I did a bunch of extra times just to kind of you know, go back and <laughs> research. And take research. Notes. Yeah. I mean, I mean, hey, plus it's Star Wars. You exactly. Right off, right off the price of Star Wars tickets. Not so bad. <laughs> it's like um, the best kind of research. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, that's tough. And, you know, but once again, I mean, this gets back to teamwork. Like, I mean, I, I had the best possible net in terms of you know, Mike Seglane and Jen Heddle at Lucasfilm mm-hmm. and the whole story group and Ryan if I needed it. So, yeah. you know, I, I knew I might fall off the tightrope a couple of times, but I also knew, you know, I wouldn't go all the way down to the circus floor that yeah. I'd get caught, yeah. which was a big relief. Well, I mean, I guess in your from your perspective, what do you think the biggest challenge is in writing a novelization for a movie that 
almost everybody has seen. Anybody who's going to read the book has probably already seen the movie. So, you know, opening the book to page one, they probably already have in their head exactly what they think is going to be inside this book. So how do you make it compelling? Yeah, that's a great question. And one thing I, um, one of my kind of, kind of rules I set for myself at the beginning was that I was not going to write, I was not going to write the book for people who had seen the movie. I was not going to assume that. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it would get either very stiff or very kind of meta, and I didn't want to do either. Um, so, you know, if something was a surprise in the movie, I wanted it to be a surprise in the book. And, you know, that that kind of set some dominoes falling that you that I might not have thought of in the beginning that that um, complicated things. Like, mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. Like, you know, in the movie, we're not supposed to understand Holdo where she's coming from, what she's trying to do. Right. Um, we're on Poe's side in the movie. I mean, that's the whole point of, you know, Poe's surprise uh, is supposed to be ours. Mm-hmm. Um, so that limited some things for me that might have been fun to play with. Like, I couldn't really be in Holdo's head until after the reveal. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that's, that's you know, I think that decision of, you know, surprise in the movie equals surprise in the book was a good one. So yeah. you just you kind of live with the consequences. Now that was um, a decision of it. That was a decision that you made as the storyteller of this book, or did that come from Story Group or somewhere else? That was my decision. Yeah. And but you know, if Story Group had not wanted to do that, um, they would have. I mean, they they definitely would have flagged it early and said, mm-hmm. "Hey, you know, maybe let's not do that." Um, I was very conscious of. Um, one of my rule, another rule for myself was at the very beginning, I was like, this is not my story. This is Ryan's story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and in this case it was even more so since he was not just the director, but the writer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that sometimes novelizations fail, uh, for a couple reasons, either, um, the writer is kind of, uh, fighting against the story trying to take it in 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 you know his or her own direction which i Mm -hmm. think is not the job here um or you know the writer is is frankly you know so scared reverential of the material that you know they kind of can't move but you know from the beginning i was like this is ryan's story don't you know keep your ego in check so you know i would certainly look for ways to uh, enrich, deepen that story, yeah. whether it was a different point of view or going into characters' heads or writing some new scenes. But, but <clears throat> I mean, every time I would look at that and say, like, why is this here? You know, is it enriching, deepening the story, or is it me pulling in some different direction? And if the latter, you know, I, it out of camp because that wasn't the job. Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, one the one of the hard parts which honestly there was no way around i just had to live with it was i mean the last jedi is a middle chapter mm-hmm. um and middle chapters don't have resolutions um a lot of stuff is still unclear in them uh for instance after you know i had to be very careful for instance about getting uh too far into kylo's head even though i knew that was something that a lot of people wanted mm-hmm. um and that's particularly true after, you know, he and Ray are on the supremacy, um, et cetera. Like, um, you know, people want to know, like, what is his motivations? What does he think? What does he want? Right. And, you know, so do I. <laughs> but, you know, those are episode nine questions. Yeah. And, um, you know, that was <laughs> that was hard. 
because you know if if this was a you know my own kind of standalone novel you'd handle that differently but again that's not the job like yeah. i mean the last thing i would want to do is step on anything uh, in episode nine well it goes um, back to like what we were saying before is that you know what's crucial to this story and you don't want to put in something yeah. that's unnecessarily going to yeah. shackle a future writer and but exactly. in this case it's a future filmmaker you know yeah yeah and as a novel author you really don't want to do yeah that. <laughs> um but yeah i mean i compare it to like you know um empire strikes back like at the end of empire of course you want to know what does luke think of this great revelation what is his goal with darth vader what does he want yeah. to do but those are return of the jedi questions yeah so you know, that was something I, I just had to live with. <laughs> um, you you mentioned that, you know, Ryan, when you met with Ryan, he said, you know, anything that you could find in an earlier draft, you can use. And I know you included some connections to, like, your previous book, uh, The Weapon of a Jedi, and some of the mm-hmm. other more recent books. How much freedom really did you have to include things that weren't in the final cut of the film? Um... Unlimited with review, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, there were there are lots of, of callbacks to um, you know everything from Phasma to Aftermath to uh, Weapon of Jedi to classic trilogy stuff. Sure, but again, you know, they they had to kind of pass that test of is this enriching, deepening, or is it there for its own sake? Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope there's none of the latter. But again, that's you know that's what I was relying on on uh, Jen Mike uh, story group four, as well as uh, Elizabeth Schaefer, my editor at Delray, Um, you know, and, and, you know, they have really good radar for that. So they were able to, you know, kind of keep me in the lines. Um, But yeah, the, the freedom is always there, which is one of the things that makes, makes star Wars so fun. I mean, there's very rarely, um, and certainly this is true of, you know, more, original fiction you, you very rarely get a no don't do that stop mm-hmm. um what you mostly get a, is you know we see what you're trying to do here's here's something we think would strengthen sharpen it mm-hmm. um which is you know is what you really want as a storyteller but i mean i mean it's funny people tend to think of of story group as kind of continuity cops and that's such a small yeah relatively unimportant part of what they do i mean what they do is right there in the title their story group yeah. They're really, really good storytellers um, who specialize in Star Wars and help um, other storytellers out. Yeah. For those scenes that you did add, um, which, you know, when you sat down to write, which scenes did you think, like, internally to yourself, well, this is essential? Like, I need to get this in. Even though it's not in the film, I need to include this somehow. Um, it, that was a really interesting mix. Um, you know, I'll give you a couple of them. Uh, the the prologue, the Luke mm-hmm. Luke's dream of of, be, of growing of getting old on Tatooine uh, with Cammy that was something that had been in my head uh, for a long time and was kind of a project I just kind of couldn't make launch and then I realized by happy accident that it actually fit really well yeah. with what Luke had done um, on Octo and was a way of accomplishing a, a whole bunch of things at once. Um, you know, Han's, uh, Han's kind of memorial service that we jump into after that with, with Leia on Dakar, that was something um, Elizabeth Schaefer and I came up with. We were kind of brainstorming, and we were like, what would we really want to see that's not in the movie? Mm-hmm. And we were both like, Han's funeral. Yeah. 
And then we were like, ooh, which is always a good reaction. Like, if you think <laughs> of something and go like, ooh, um, you know, that's good. But uh, a scene that's that's one of people's favorites in the book uh, is is Leia and Chewie at the yeah, very end. Exactly. That kind of emotional moment between then. That was, I mean, we were really done. I mean, it was literally the last couple of days possible. And um, and Jen, uh, Jen Heddle and Mike Seglane, um, asked me and Elizabeth to jump on a call and said they wanted one more scene. And to be frank, I was like, oh, my God, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> um, and then they told they told us the scene they wanted. Yeah. And I was like, wow, I'm so happy I get to write that scene. <laughs> Thank oh, you. yeah. No, I just have to not screw it up. So um, but, you know, I, I think that illustrates what I've been saying. I mean, you know, that's kind of three different starting points uh, for three scenes that I'm very um, honored that I got to write. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, that's part of the fun of it. I mean, yeah. it really is a great team. Did you have any collaboration with Michael Kogi at all? He wrote the junior novelization. Yeah. My, um, Mike and I talk about storytelling all the time. Mm-hmm. We're very simpatico about that and we love doing it. Um, we didn't talk very much while we were actually writing. Cause I think, you know, you got to get your head down and work so hard that, you know, that, I think that's not really helpful. It's a way of losing focus if you're worrying about that. Um, but a couple things. One was that I mean, when I um, when I read all those scripts, I, uh, I made kind of a a big Excel uh, database of all the scenes, and then added in like potential additional scenes and the deleted scenes and things like that. And we used that as kind of a master. Uh, for a couple of projects and you know one thing we wanted to do was you know leave uh, some things uh, that would be just Mike's or just mine or you know just belong uh, to the comics Uh, so we worked together that way and then we you know kind of when we were both kind of had a draft we touched base on um, you know some places where we were trying to do the same thing and made sure it worked together uh, and things like that, but gosh, there <laughs> there are things that Mike did that are just amazing. I'm super <laughs> jealous. Um, he has a description of like, you know, the uh, master code breaker oozing confidence like a hut in heat, <laughs> which is so good. I'm like, oh, why didn't I write that? That's so good. Um, and he has just a, a heartbreaking scene with uh, Luke and R2, which is exclusive. Uh, to that, which is just is just fabulous, yeah. but uh, yeah, but so yeah, but then he and I, when we were done, we had a blast, like talking over um, everything we'd we'd gotten to do and our different choices, and that was a lot of fun. So I'm not asking you to reveal anything. I'm just curious: were you involved in any sort of discussions about the story beyond the Last Jedi, like even if just to include a few breadcrumbs or hints about Episode Nine in your book? Like, did they say, "Yeah, let's just let's put in this quick little passage," and that way, in a couple of years, we can look back and say, "Hey, there's that hint that nobody really noticed at the time." No zero, really? uh, which I loved. Yeah, I know nothing about episode nine, which okay. is great. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. <laughs> but yeah, but again, you know, that's something where um, you know, that, that's something where it goes back to, to, you know, how good the team is mm-hmm. that, um, you know, I honestly can't recall anything getting edited out because it might have stepped on it. But I mean, partially that was because, you know, I knew to tread lightly in places. Yeah. 
But, um, you know, but I had every confidence that if I, you know, if I strayed too far, that they'd be there to, um, to put it right. Yeah. Um, of all the new characters introduced to Star Wars in the last few years, I guess since, since Force Awakens and the, the relaunch, um, who do you find the most compelling? And who's, I mean, is that person, is that the person's story that you'd want to explore further? Yeah, it's going to sound diplomatic, but I really, I really honestly do love all these characters. Yeah. I mean, you've got, Ray is such an interesting mix of, of strength and um, uncertainty and some, some self-inflicted mistakes. Like, she's unbelievably brave, but keeps putting her faith in like mentors to fix things mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and it just doesn't work until finally you know she has to be convinced that she's got to do it all herself um i love finn i mean finn is such an amazing character he's basically a brainwashed child soldier who you know has this extraordinary moral compass to cast that off and then has to figure out um you know how to make his own way really without help without um, you know, any kind of, you know, signpost to do that. Um, just incredibly brave, honorable character. Um, you know, I love Poe. I love Poe as the, you know, the hotshot pilot who then, you know, whose story we really need to see more of in nine, who's just learned this, this kind of enormous lesson at the end of eight. What does he do with that? Um, you know, as well as writing, as well as writing, uh, I mean, Luke and Leia, which is mm-hmm. just, you know, for someone who's literally, you know, seen their adventures uh, or read their adventures for 40 years, that was a huge responsibility. So, yeah, I mean, I really do love all of them. Fair enough. Fair enough. Do you have a favorite Star Wars story, though? I mean, like, including what's now called Legends? Uh, my fa- well, my favorite movie is, is Empire, mm-hmm. which is probably not a surprise for a 49-year-old guy when <laughs> most of us say Empire. Uh, but no, more seriously, it's just, I mean, it took all the kind of fun and flash of Star Wars, and then um, it's the place where it really becomes an epic mm-hmm. that, you know, it kind of dropped the bottom out from, out from under all the Flash Gordon stuff with, you know, these huge revelations and mythic significance. And I just think it's, you know, it's, it's most people's favorite because it's just extraordinary that that worked. Mm-hmm. Um, for books, uh, my favorite is still uh, Han Solo at Star's End nice. by, by Brian Daly. <laughs> yeah, it's such a, I mean, it's such a great book. And I just, I don't think anyone has ever done uh, Han better than Daly did, mm-hmm. um, which is no insult to a- any other writer. It's just he got this character just perfectly. And um, those books are, I mean, they're full of, they're wildly inventive, but they're also, they're fun and they're funny which yeah. is something I think Star Wars sometimes forgets to be. Yeah. Um, they're really funny. Yeah, <laughs> the those books are so underrated. Terrific. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I just, I love those books. I mean, and yeah, Star's End is, you know, it makes no difference that those are officially non-canon or yeah. whatever now. I mean, that was my favorite then. It's my favorite now. Nice. So moving forward, um, you mentioned books four and five for the Jupiter Pirates. Uh, what's the latest on those and what else have you got coming down the pike? Uh, I'm working on the uh, story for four, Jupiter Pirates four. Um, I am a real convert to uh, story treatments before I write, hmm. um, which I have taken to. Uh, I, I've kind of gone too deep. Um, like I did a 
gosh, for the Servants of the Empire series a while back, I did a story treatment uh, for that that was like 8,000 words. Wow. And it's a 30,000-word book. Yeah. And poor Jen Nettle was like, you know, you could just write the book. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, but no, I find it, it really helps me figure out the story and not, you know, if you if you got a 200-page book and you figure out something's wrong on page 160, yeah. you got a whole lot to do to go back. So I'd much rather figure it out on like, you know, uh, you know, page eight of a 10 right. uh, page treatment. Um, anyway, so yeah, Jupiter Pirates uh, 4, I'm working on getting that treatment right. Um, I uh, My next Star Wars book is uh, Solo Tales from Vandor, which comes out in September. Um, it's uh, basically the, the bartender at the, uh, at the bar we see, uh, you know, where the Sabak game is mm-hmm. and, the, and the droid fights it's him telling you know tales about these characters who have come through nice. uh, that, that awesome. bar and some of the tales are true and some of them <laughs> absolutely are not and uh it won't always be clear which is which but um yeah that was a lot of fun to do i'm looking forward to uh, getting to share that with people and then i'm actually working on a uh an adult fantasy called uh, magician of the water um where i've just finishing up revising the treatment for that and then um you know send that out to some folks and then see what the next step is so yeah i mean whether probably the next step will be you know write the first hundred pages or so but um you know but that's great it's you know once again just figure out a world that you're going to be really happy playing in for a year or or years yeah yeah, so, don't get that part wrong. Or <laughs> what's what's really fun becomes less fun. So writing the the story treatments, you know, it sounds like you're the type of writer who needs to have that entire arc right there in front of you. you you're not one of the people, you know. I guess it makes sense because you said you don't subscribe to the mysticism, but it's like you don't. The characters told me where they needed to go as I was writing the book. You hear that sometimes too. Yeah. No, I'm like, <laughs> yeah. The characters don't tell me anything. That's my job. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I'm a convert to it. And I, I will say, I'll, I'll say this. I think the reason that I resisted it for a long time was that I thought it would take all the fun out of the book. Um, I thought if I had a full treatment that it would be like a straight jacket. And I find that that's not true at all. Um, like a good, a good kind of 25, 30% of what I wind up writing will depart from the treatment. Uh, cause I'll think of different things and, you know, new possibilities will suggest themselves. And that's great. Um, but you know, what it, it really helps me with is not only seeing problems before I sit down to write, but also, you know, if I, if I start kind of getting off track, I can use that as a reminder, like, oh, we have to get here and, um, you know, kind of make better decisions then if I really need to change something. I mean, it's really, it's really a roadmap and, you know, the point of a roadmap isn't to force you to go between A and B it's to actually give you the freedom to you know take a little side trip so you know you can get back to the root which uh which is great and has really helped me you know make my peace with it and learn the value of it this has been the great big beautiful podcast you can find us online at the gbbpodcast.com and on twitter and facebook at the gbbpodcast Thanks again for subscribing and listening. We really do appreciate it. And until next week, I am Jamie Green, and you can find me at The Roarbox. Take care. <laughs>